Chicago's home for sports on Twitter at ESPN 1000. Welcome to White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000. 1000. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. I'm Connor McKnight, and it is our privilege to be joined by new White Sox senior advisor for pitching, Brian Bannister. New addition to Chris Getz's front office. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate the time. How you doing? I'm doing great. Great to be here. Absolutely. Uh, so, quick question. Let's get this uh, first and foremost out of the way. You got a spot for the USC Arizona Wildcats game tonight, or will you be skipping the college football? Uh, always rooting for USC passively. A lot of a lot of baseball stuff going on right now, but uh, always keep an eye on them. We have a USC flag flying on the front of our house. So, uh, big fan of the program, and uh, my wife was a song girl there, and so just lots of loyalty to what they're doing. That is uh, my first job out of college was covering college football, and when I stepped, fo- I went to Wisconsin. But when I stepped foot on the USC campus, I looked around and I thought, "Oh man, that could have been a lot different." This is really nice out here. Yes, yes. So, Brian, when when the off season hits, we often think and kind of wait as as baseball fans, like, "Okay, what are the next things going to be? Let's see what happens with this team." What is what is your job day to day here in the off season as you get set and kind of embedded? in this White Sox front office, what sorts of things have you, have you gone about first? Yeah, I was able to see this process play out with both the Red Sox. When I joined there, they were coming off a last place season in 2014 uh, with the Giants coming off a last place season. Uh, And I've watched what others have done uh, who I think have done really well in their roles. And I think it's observe, it's build relationships, build trust, uh, ask really good questions about what's gone on in the past. Uh, because superficially, a lot of people are on their best behavior when there's a lot of turnover, uh, and you're really trying to get under the hood a little bit uh, and find out, you know, what led to a 101 loss season. If there's lots of good people around, was it the concepts? Was it what they were prioritizing as far as pitcher attributes? And there's there's no one clear cut answer, and I think every environment you go into, it's slightly different. Uh, but I do have existing relationships with a lot of people in the front office, a lot of the staff down in the clubhouse. And that's given me a little bit of a head start in getting some good information to help us make good decisions and for me to pass on good information to others throughout the organization. How much did those existing relationships come into play when you uh, you know, kind of sat down and mulled over the offer from Chris Getz and the White Sox? It was tough because uh, I was also talking with the Tigers and uh, Scott Harris, who's running that club now, uh, was my old boss in San Francisco, and mm-hmm. I worked with him daily for multiple years and have a ton of respect for him and what he's doing. Um, and so knowing Ethan Katz and having worked alongside him and knowing Chris Getz and uh, the goals that he has for the organization going forward and, and Gene Watson, who was the scout that traded for me from the Mets to the Royals back in uh, the 2006 winter meetings. Uh, just having those existing relationships where we can get past uh, kind of getting to know each other and really focus on what needs to be done that was a huge priority to me because I, I would love to turn this around sooner rather than later. And uh, that just gives us a little bit of a head start in, in making decisions and 
um, just going with our guts and our experience and, and everything we've accumulated up to this point in our careers. I'm talking with Brian Bannister, the new senior advisor of pitching for the White Sox here on White Sox Weekly. Brian, as you you know, once we get, let's say, fast forward six months from now or something like that, once kind of the newness of the job and the you know scan your card and where the bathrooms and stuff of this thing kind of goes away, how much do you see this as, as your responsibility to the, the major league side, the minor league side of things? How do you delineate between the two? What's the best way to do your job as it regards big league and minor league? I think this role is going to be closer to the role that I performed in Boston. And San Francisco is a little bit more of a, a pure coach role. Uh, in Boston, I had one one foot in the front office, one foot down in the clubhouse. And I think I thrived that way. And I was able to see what was going on in pitching throughout the whole organization on a daily basis, as well as I'd, I'd be up in the suite during the games with Dabrowski and Larusa and the rest of the front office uh, talking through – uh, problems throughout the organization and, and coming up with solutions for everything um, and just giving them a better pulse on what our day-to-day needs were. So I'm anticipating uh, more of that type of a rhythm on a day-to-day basis, um, already being up in the suite with, with Getz and Barfield and Watson and uh, Haber and the other leaders of the organization. And so um, being able to uh, attack the highest priority targets, uh, attack the low-hanging fruit in the org, uh, develop relationships quickly, figure out where we're weak, um, you know, educate and present to staff throughout the organization to just upgrade the general awareness on concepts. And, uh, you know, already had great conversations with the analytics group and strength and conditioning, uh, sports performance, and really seeing those types of departments get built out in both Boston and San Francisco and trying to uh, take what was good, uh, avoid what was bad, and really make those uh, world-class departments with a lot of synergy and collaboration between all of them. Brian, I remember reading about you when you were a pitcher. I was I was particularly attracted to the idea that you had kind of talked about pitch effects and how to shape your stuff and how to use that data as a player. And obviously that's been a big and it seems like formative process as you've worked through a handful of different jobs here in the big leagues and in the front office. Um, to what degree... Are, are we as, as kind of like a, a baseball nerdery, like the numbers people and then the player? How, how well do those two things talk to each other within organizations these days? If you, if you could comment on the, on the entire Major League Baseball, just kind of as a thumbnail. You know, originally when I joined the Red Sox in, in 2014, we were still in the early stages. I think you had seen the Astros, the Rays, certain organizations get out in front of, of analytics. And there, there was just so much to do at that point. What's happened is, you know, kind of a rising tide lifts all boats. As just knowledge has spread, as people have changed organizations, each time that happens and new discoveries are made and they're presented to the general public or they're put on Twitter, um, you, you see the collective knowledge of the industry go up. And so we're, we're pretty far down the rabbit hole as far as what we know about the game and going from pitch effects to a more uh, complex system that collects more data like Hawkeye, which is what's in Major League Baseball right now. Right. Uh, there's less and less mystery about what we're doing out there. And so what it gets back to is what what are we prioritizing in pitchers, uh, in, in developing them, in training them, and helping them recover. Um, and so much of the uh, area to kind of create alpha uh, in your process are, are still where there's a lot of projection. So it's in the amateur scouting. It's in the international scouting. Uh, it's in identifying pitchers that are pitching in the wrong style who are already in pro ball 
and having the staff with the competency to go in and make those changes. Because uh, most of the time, the, the good players are the good players. Everybody knows that the market values them fairly, and you either choose to pay for them or not. Uh, a lot of the ways that you gain little edges uh, as an organization is in all the other areas where you're either betting on what they're going to be in the future or you're able to make changes faster and more accurately in existing pitchers. Um, so we're, we're, we're a lot of the way into that, uh, but there's still groups that do it better than others. And you go back to the OG days of pitch effects, and Mike Fast was one of my heroes who's mm. now with the Braves. And Sig Meidel, who was one of the original analysts of Houston, who's running the Orioles now. And you still see these guys having success. And it's because they're passionate, they're talented, they're good communicators, and they keep coming up with original ideas on how to make players better. So there is still kind of an inner circle within the game. Um, and then there's still clubs that are lagging and are behind. And the goal, whenever you go to a new club, is to figure out, uh, are we lagging? And if we are uh, let's let's get to the front of the pack as fast as possible. One of the, one of our callers earlier in the show, Brian mentioned he was talking about hitting uh, and how it seemed to him and it seemed to other hitting coaches, kind of when they talk, that it is difficult to adapt the new style to hitters. Pitchers don't necessarily respond to some of those stylistic changes, some of those mechanical changes, in the same way. It, would you would you agree that that's generally true? And if so. Why? Why are pitchers more pliable? Why is it that that side of the game adapts quicker or better uh, than it seems like hitters might? I think there's probably two reasons there on the hitting side. Um, the big one that is hard to measure is that you can have a great swing, but if you don't have great timing and you don't have great pitch recognition, it, it doesn't matter. And so as a pitcher – we can mess with mechanics. We can change pitch grips. We can change pitch shapes uh, with the analytics. And ultimately, then the hitter has to react to all that. And if, if you make changes with a hitter physically, biomechanically, uh, but they can't get the timing right and they can't recognize the pitches, it doesn't matter. And I think that's one of the, the bigger challenges and why hitting is so much more difficult as pitchers continue to get better and better is those are still two of the limiting factors uh, of a hitter's ceiling and what coaches are trying to deal with. When when we look through the trends and forces in this game, you can go back to, I don't know, 2005, 2008-ish or something like that, and you've got the, the nasty sinkers and splitters of a guy like Brandon Webb, and then we start changing more to the you know, kind of the, the, the gross sliders that big-time strikeout pitchers are throwing, then launch angle come in, comes into play through hitters, and we see the high fastball become a big part of the game and strikeout numbers that continue to increase in, in historic numbers. Now, it seems like we're moving back to a little bit of a, you know, a two seam sink action kind of thing. We're seeing that pitch kind of rise. We've now labeled the splitter or rather the slider and sweeper as two different pitches. What's next? Like, what's that next frontier? What's zigging while everyone else is zagging pitching wise? Yeah, I've been. Uh, lucky to be a part of a lot of those trends, you know, getting the high fastball more integrated in the game, uh, getting more splitters into the game, you know, calling it a sweeper instead of a slider, like just, just to be at the forefront of all that, because we did have needs and there were just uh, places uh, the pitchers were not taking advantage uh, of certain pitch types or certain locations in the zone. 
And uh, once you recognized it, it was pretty obvious that if you went out and exploited that, uh, you were going to have success as a pitching staff. And I have numerous examples throughout the years of, of where we did that. Uh, I, I finally think that we're at a point where a lot of these concepts are so saturated and there, there's very little that um, is new. We're not going to come up with a new pitch per se. Uh, everything that's, that's been done is, it has been done. And uh, now it's, it's the variations of all that. But I do think, and this is something that's a priority for me, uh, for the White Sox is I think uh, diversity of styles and arms mm. is extremely important uh, with a pitching staff in today's game. I think hitters are very good at second or third time they face a pitcher of making those necessary adjustments. They have all the analytics. They have VR goggles. They have pitching machines that can recreate exactly what the pitcher's throwing. Uh, so they're getting all dialed in, and they're learning from each at bat and getting better each time. Um, so the ability for a starting pitcher to show them a bunch of different looks in, throughout the game and then also to have complementary pieces in the bullpen that can handle all different types of hitting styles. Some hitters have more vertical bat angles. Some have more horizontal bat angles. Some are inside out. Some are more barrel heavy. You want to have solutions to all of those things hitters are going to throw back at you. And you want to give them a different look as often as possible. And you don't have to get uh, as extreme as we did in San Francisco with openers and uh, three-inning rolls. You can still do it with starters and relievers. uh, But it's very important to be a Swiss Army Knife staff where whatever the other roster is going to throw at you, you have a solution for it. And the Rays kind of became known for it. It's something we tried to do in in San Francisco. And it's something that I'd like to bring to the White Sox as far as uh, being comfortable with a lot of different styles, you know, sinking the ball, spinning the ball, elevating the ball, uh, dealing with split fingers and low RPM pitches. Um, the more variety you can have on your staff, uh, the more likely you are to give hitters looks that they can't handle and they don't have a solution for. And so the hitters are trying to solve for multiple puzzles uh, throughout a game. And I think that's what really is going to create an effective pitching staff in today's game where there are so many analytics. Brian, the the White Sox pitching staff, as it stands, you know the, the the MLB pitching staff could be a bit in flux in 2024. Two names that are likely to be there: are Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech. Um, you've got some familiarity with Kopech, I believe, uh, crossed over a bit in your time in Boston. What have been kind of the first uh, touchstones, um, if if they if they have existed yet? Here, just early on in the job between you and Cease and you and Kopech in the offseason. Uh. <laughs> With Cease, uh, the first interaction was uh, I found out he's a big oyster guy, and he wanted me to go to RPM Seafood in downtown Chicago. So, Did you go? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Great first recommendation. So yeah. my respect level for him is already elevated. That's a huge uh, win. That doesn't yeah. surprise me from him either. Yeah, it wasn't even a baseball conversation. But <laughs> uh, I think I think with him, it's there was some underperformance this year uh, with the actual performance versus the underlying performance. And I think a lot of that had to do with the exploration of the changeup and the rest of his arsenal and how that integrated. He's one of the top pitchers in baseball, uh, an extreme physical talent, great aptitude, great competitor, uh, unbelievable personality. And so I think it's just getting him dialed in on, on what he is, what his strengths are, and making sure that's on point every fifth day. Um, and then with, with Kopech, I had him in, in Boston as a minor leaguer with the Red Sox, and he was part of the Chris Sale trade. Uh, I know he's uh, – 
recovering from a leg injury. Uh, so the first time I got to meet him in Chicago, uh, he was still recovering from that. Uh, but I do have history on his development process with the Red Sox and watching video of him and looking at his biomechanics uh, with what went on this year and I have some short-term solutions for him that I think uh, will get him in the zone more, get him confident, and allow his stuff to play up. Um, so just a big fan of his, and the physicality is impressive. Uh, always admired that. Um, but just throughout the staff, it's, it's finding out uh, what their strengths are, letting them know about that, giving them good direction in the offseason and coming into spring training, uh, and really building out a staff that uh, has a lot of different looks. Uh, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, Santos. He had a great year, had him in Boston as well. Um, so uh, his his ability to add the sinker this year was impressive. And uh, just a lot of stories like that uh, I'm looking forward to for 2024. Brian, final one, and this is probably the most difficult question. 99 Pedro Martinez or 2002 Randy Johnson? I'm still 99 Pedro. Yeah, uh, no, that's... It, yeah. I made a T-shirt that says that because I think it was just peak pitching and you know him in the All-Star game, uh, him just being smaller in stature but larger than life out on the mound is just what I desire from every pitcher that I work with. And uh, he, was a, he was a phenomenon and my favorite season of all time to watch. Yep. That's that's the correct answer. Three hundred thirteen strikeouts. I mean, that's that's I can't. Oh my god! That and the two year run for him, really three years total, but like two year run, three year run. That's just like you said, peak pitching, man. I don't know if it gets better than that. In the midst of the steroid era, he still did that. Yep, worth noting. Brian, this has been great. Really appreciate it. I uh, hope we can have you on again soon. No, looking forward to it. Have a great day. You got it. It's Brian Bannister, the new White Sox senior advisor to pitching and a Pedro Martinez Stan, a guy who's going to stand up for that 1999 season as the greatest modern-day pitching performance in baseball history. I, you know, listen, did I tell you first? Yeah, sure, I guess I did. But Brian backed me up, and that's really cool. That's, that's a really, man, there's a lot of follow-up there. There's a lot of stuff we got to talk about when it comes to what Brian Bannister just told us about how that White Sox pitching staff is trying to build itself out and develop itself here coming down. There's one thing in particular that he mentioned. I don't know if you caught it. One thing in particular that he mentioned that really has me thinking quite a bit and, and, and really hopeful about where the White Sox can kind of move and zig before everyone else zags here in 2024. That's some good stuff. Hey, stay out of the elements in 2024. Located on the 200 level behind home plate, the Guaranteed Rate Club offers all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and complimentary parking. Plans start at 20 games. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash GRC or call or text 312-674-1000. Your phone calls when we come back. We're going to recap some of that Brian Bannister interview. That's next on White Sox Weekly. This is Chicago's home for sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. Here on the ESPN 1000, Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network, I'm Connor McKnight. Just got done talking with Brian Bannister, the new senior advisor for pitching with the White Sox. He was one of three front office hires by Chris Getz and, and the rest of the White Sox. Uh, you know, to add on to that front office bulk 
Added to the brain trust was Brian Bannister. He'd been the, you know, kind of, we, we talked about it some in the interview, uh, senior advisor for pitching in a couple of different ways in Boston and in San Francisco with the Red Sox and Giants before this, um, and now with the White Sox. And I think this is going to be, you know, Brian Bannister comes with a very uh, good reputation of of being able to, you know, kind of oversee a pitching infrastructure uh, advise some tweaks, encourage development, and alter approach. And the results um, have been really good for Brian. Eh, there's been some things along the way, you know, missteps and whatnot, under But that that happened. That's coaching, right? I mean, that's kind of baseball too. But largely, this this uh, front office hire has been met, uh, and I agree with it with a lot of aplomb. And you like a lot of aplomb better than a little bit of aplomb. You want a lot of aplomb. So when he was talking uh, just a little bit ago, and by the way, if you missed the interview or you caught it like halfway through or whatever, and you want to catch up and re-listen to it, maybe file it away for for spring training or whatever, download the ESPN Chicago app. Each and every one of our shows here on White Sox Weekly and you know throughout the station are downloadable in podcast format. You can listen to them at your leisure, and you could listen back through that interview with Brian Bannister, and then you know memorize a couple of fun facts and and impress your friends at the bar or whatever. It'd be good. One of the things he said that just I absolutely it's something we talked about in, you know, in between innings and stuff and something we talked about in the booth and whatnot. Just kind of as we talk about baseball philosophy, I love the idea, love the idea of having a pitching staff, starters and relievers, where guys come at you from different angles, different approaches, different kinds of stuff, different looks. I love it. It's how the Rays have worked. And don't give me, oh, well, the Rays lost in two games to the Rangers. The Rays lost in two games to the Rangers. They didn't score. <laughs> Scored one damn run. They they pitched really well throughout the season. And that's with all the injuries they had. You lose Shane McClanahan and still put up one of the best bullpen seasons. Not that McClanahan was in the bullpen. He was a starter. But still put up one of the best bullpen seasons in the second half. The baseball scene in terms of strikeout rate. They were bad out of the bullpen in kind of that early middle part of the season. Kind of that you know June and July-ish sort of thing. The Rays. They, they retooled, revamped, added a couple, subtracted a couple. And, and still put together a really great pitching organization they have done this for a while it's one of that organization's great strengths and when you talk to people around the game one of the things they'll say about what makes the race so difficult to hit over the last five six seven eight years is that they've got all kinds all kinds of different stuff they come at you from down around the ankles they come at you from straight over the top they've got side swipe and sweepers and sinkers and half fastballs and risers i love that idea because as you look at one of the driving forces in strategy over the last 10, 15, 20 years, it's that third time through the order penalty. The idea that a starter, when he faces a hitter for the third time in a baseball game, is much more vulnerable. Now, that's not the case for every single pitcher. And it's not the case for every single hitter that he gets better third time through. But for the most part, the numbers, the production on at-bats that third time through the order it skyrockets. You want to face that starter for a third time because you kind of feel like you know what he's coming at you with and you can do damage. It's often the case that when we compare eras, right? Um, Roberto Clemente versus uh, Mike Trout, right? It is very true that while both are fantastic players, right? And their resumes speak for themselves. One of the advantages that Clemente and everybody else in his era and the eras before it had is that he faced the starter three times for sure, and maybe even four. That's very different 
than facing at times three different pitchers in four different at-bats. Four different pitchers in five different at-bats. And in some games, if you're facing an opener or you knock the starter out early or the start, whatever, you may face a different pitcher in every single at-bat. That's more difficult. And it's because you're seeing more looks. You don't get time to lock in. You are reacting to that pitcher. And if it's different every time, it's more and more difficult to do so. And you know, you, we can get around this with video study and whatnot, but it's different once you face them live. You got to feel it. You got to see it. It's why the eye pitch, the machine that mimics the exact movement of a particular pitcher that a guy's going to face, the stuff that Gavin and Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger and, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the third guy that was often on that. Oh, Andrew Vaughn was often on that machine. Not that other guys weren't. Luis Robert was just not on the field in the group I'm thinking about. Um, the, the reason that they kind of uh, you know, push forward that machine is because it's as close to the stuff you're going to face that day as you can possibly face without you know, seeing the guy in live batting practice. And I don't think the other team is going to allow you to face their today's starter in live batting practice. That just wouldn't be how it works. So I love the philosophy of assembling a lot of different looks, of being more multiple out of your bullpen and perhaps in your starting pitching. I like the idea, and Brian also mentioned, I asked him specifically about Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech, two, in my mind, linchpins, in terms of what happens next for the White Sox in 2024, right? Who is Dylan Cease? Is he the Cy Young runner-up that he was in 23? Is he a guy with a four-and-a-half ERA that we saw in 2000, and, uh, pardon, 2022 with a Cy Young runner-up and a four-and-a-half in 2023? Yeah, I think largely he's probably somebody in between and probably toward the better end of those two performances, but you have to see it. And you didn't see it last year, at least not in the same way you did. He, he kind of encouraged with what he'd seen from Dylan Cease and, and didn't seem to think that there were some big time changes that needed to get made. Kopech, on the other hand, you know, endorsed for sure, um, but a little bit more around the edges on, on, on Kopech. And I, you know, with the injury, the, the surgery that he's having to repair the cyst in his knee or, or I guess remove the cyst in his knee, that's going to take some bouncing back from. And you're going to have to see Michael healthy before you can really kind of make your assessments of the pitcher that he can be in 2024. Those are two outstanding areas around a pitching staff that still has a lot of question marks as you go from last season into 2024. So I, I think that's maybe where we'll head next. Kind of ask some of the big questions about the pitching when we come back and round out the show with some of the bigger questions about some hitters under contract with options and in expiring contracts. Got a lot to do here on White Sox Weekly and not too much time left to do it. I'm Connor McKnight on the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you miss the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White, White Sox, Sox Weekly. Weekly. ESPN Chicago. Chicago's home for sports. Another 3-2. Swing. He went. That's strike three. Liam's pumped up. A fist bump off the mound. Into the dugout. Pops the jersey. Two punch outs for Liam Hendricks. We're tied at two, and the Sox have come to bat to try and win it. The 3-2 coming. He got him looking on a fastball, and Verdugo did not argue. And he swings and misses and ends up down on a back knee as C strikes him out. The 1-2. Swing and a miss on a low fastball. Cease has struck out seven. The set and the 3-2. Swing and a miss, strike three. Ten strikeouts for Cease. Swing and a miss on a slider, strike three. That's 11 Ks for Cease. Let's talk a little pitching, shall we? 
Heard highlights of Liam Hendricks and Dylan Cease, the White Sox pitching staff. Struggled for the most part. I mean, listen, when you lose 101 games, you've got some struggles on uh, every side of the baseball and every facet of the the, uh, the on-field product, for sure. However, the White Sox going from 2023 into 2024 may look to solve some of their pitching issues in uh, ways they hadn't done before. Uh, I'll tell you what I mean in just a little bit. But I want to start with Dylan Cease here. Um, his last couple of starts, better, not great, but certainly better than what the month of August looked like and certainly what the month um, of May looked like. A, a real struggle for him early on for Dylan Cease. He started the year looking so good against the Houston Astros. Made 33 starts this year, a new career high for him. Uh, second in baseball in terms of total starts. You know, Taking the ball is a huge asset for a starting pitcher. You want him out there, you want him healthy, and Dylan definitely gave you that. Anyway, six and a third, ten strikeouts for Dylan March 30th in the uh, opener against the Astros. He looked absolutely great. And it took a while to see that kind of Dylan Cease again. He had a five and a third inning outing against the uh, Dodgers, rather, where he struck out ten. Struck out 11 Angels on June 26th. It was a good start for him. He still had four earned runs, though. He struck out 11, a season high, against the Boston Red Sox in a... Uh, in a one nothing win, Luis Robert Jr. hit a home run off Pesky's pole down the right field corner for the only White Sox run. Uh, and that was a great game for Dylan. He scattered six hits. He did not walk a batter and struck out 11. I, I think a lot of offseason conversation is going to be about, believe it or not, more White Sox pitching than it's going to be about White Sox hitting. And I don't mean to say that there won't be, con- like, listen, Tim Anderson's option is going to be talked about. Whether Eloy Jimenez is going to be traded is going to be talked Sure, there are going to be conversations there. But Dylan Cease is, is a guy, right? I mean, this is a top end of the rotation kind of fella who finished runner-up in the AL Cy Young in 2022. And given what Brian Bannister told us in the interview prior, you know, here on White Sox Weekly today, uh, if you look under the hood and kind of poke around some numbers here, there's a lot to still, obviously, there's a lot to still work with here and a lot better to come for Dylan, I think a lot of people would believe, um, than the 2023 season showed us. Now, that's not to say that the walk rate can continue. Dylan walked 78 batters in 2022 and led all of baseball. He walked 79 this year, uh, and that was not a league-leading total, but more last year or more this past year than he did two years ago. The walks need to come down. And that's it, it's an easier thing to say when we're talking about pitching than it is about hitting, right? Well, you got to change your walk total. You got to be around the strike zone more. But one of the things that's phenomenal about Dylan Cease is what's true about Blake Snell in, in this season, where he may win the NL Cy Young Award. He can walk a lot and still strike out a ton and keep the ERA and the strand rate low and high, respectively, and and, and win titles. You know, win, win win awards at the end of the season. That's a testament to the stuff they both have. But how often can you do that? How often can you be around that plate? How many swings and misses can you get? Can you stay on top of your stuff the way Dylan did in 2022? I thought the stuff took a step back in 23 for Dylan Cease. Certainly not to the point where there's anything you you can't work with, you can't build. I mean, shoot, it's real close to elite, even in bad starts for Dylan. But I think the conversation around whether the White Sox should have Dylan Cease or trade Dylan Cease is maybe the most meaningful uh, next step for the White Sox. Because while 
you can have conversations about picking up Tim Anderson's option or not, or whether or not Eloy Jimenez, given kind of the conversation Chris Getz has had about being more uh, athletic, more multiple as position players, and that kind of rules out Eloy Jimenez, considering he's kind of a DH only at this point, or at least it seems to be. You know, you, you can kind of read some tea leaves here. And you could kind of you could make some of those moves on the hitting side of things and still push yourself some, still make some free agent signings, uh, some minor league call-ups, some, some good you know, off-season additions, and be better than you were in 2023. I don't believe what you can do is, is probably trade Dylan Cease and be better in 2024. Maybe you make that right trade. It's going to be difficult. You make that right trade, maybe you can. Which is to say, I think, you know, trading, if the White Sox trade Dylan Cease, and there's certainly some points to make on both sides of the equation, you trade Dylan Cease, and, and this looks more like a retrenching and kind of establishment uh, or reestablishing season than it does kind of pushing for playoff seating or pushing the Twins at the top of the AL Central, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I'm yet to know. You know exactly which way things are going to go here. I, I, I've yet to really hear from the Sox themselves, and it makes sense. You know, they're in assessment period. They got a new front office. They don't have to tip their hand or anything like that. I mean, my lord, why would you? Right prior to the winter meetings, nobody needs to go out there and say, "Here's what we're doing." No, you just do the things. You talk to the people. You make the moves. You do the things. I'm not saying that anybody needs to play with their, you know, cards out on the table. Far from it. But there are options available to where the White Sox move here and how they move. In 2024, or for, for 2024, it looks like, you know, based on Cott's contracts and some other reporting from MLB trade rumors and some estimations of arbitration numbers and whatnot, maybe like $120 million on the books for 2024. The Osmani Grandal contract is expired, uh, and the White Sox will probably look to reinforce the catching position either behind or in front of Corey Lee. Yet to be seen what that market looks like. You've got second base to consider. You've got right field to consider again. Um, all those kinds of things are going to go into play. But at $120 million, you've also got to sign some starting pitching. The White Sox traded both Lance Land and Lucas Giolito at the deadline. Not to mention the other relievers that went in some of those trades and Kendall Graveman who went to the Astros, right? I mean, there's a lot of rebuilding that pitching staff that needs to be done. Um regardless of whether you want to make a contending run in 2024. A lot of the guys that were pitching in that White Sox bullpen, Declan Cronin, Lane Ramsey, um, Sammy Peralta, uh, some others like Luis Patino, those are guys that are you know being pushed a little bit in terms of level of competition. And that push is the right thing to do when you're in the spot the White Sox unfortunately got themselves into late in that season. But I don't know that you want to run it all back necessarily and just say, all right, well, we'll keep the kids in there. Let them I think there are probably there are going to be some additions in that bullpen and in that starting rotation. I mean, in terms of starters, Kopech and Cease are the guys that are under contract. Mike Clevenger's got a mutual option for 2024. It is what it says it is, right? I mean, both... Sides have to be willing to exercise that option. And if either one doesn't want to, then they don't have to. And, they go, and, and Clevenger would go to free agency. I think Mike Clevenger certainly pitched well enough that he could entertain free agency 
and make more money than is available to him in that second-year player uh, mutual option. It's, po- it's definitely possible. The Liam Hendricks situation is a complicated one, too. Or maybe it's not complicated, but it's a difficult one to suss out. It's a simple equation, right? There's $15 million reported on the option for 2024. Liam is highly unlikely to be able to pay, although I wouldn't put it past him. Like, it's Liam Hendricks. <laughs> but he's highly unlikely to be able to come back and pitch from Tommy John surgery in 2024. Liam's made it known that he'd like to be around. Happy to do what he can. That money is is kind of guaranteed, it sounds like, through reports. Um, I think it deferred payments for the next little bit. So that money's there one way or the other, more or less. You know, obviously a million dollars in you know, 15 years from now isn't the same as a million dollars now, inflation being what it is, even though it's better now. I, yeah, I, I think you could make an argument of, of keeping Liam around and seeing if you could, or, or perhaps if you wanted to do this, you know, turn down that option, but negotiate some sort of you know two-year extension with an option perhaps tacked on to the two years. You know, make sure he's around for 2025 when he comes back. Liam is absolutely a positive influence, and the guy can do a lot for you in that bullpen. But those are decisions. You know, whether it's the Clevenger one, whether it's the Liam Hendricks one, those are all decisions about you know the existing pieces. What I find really interesting is kind of imagining what the new additions may or may not look. You know, for instance. You hear Brian Bannister, the senior advisor to White Sox pitching uh, on the show here earlier. He spoke very highly and and has in other interviews. um, We're not the only one of White Sox pitching coach Ethan Katz. Ethan's got an existing relationship with Jack Flaherty. Remember, that's the whole conversation. G. Lito and Flaherty and Max Fried all in the same high school pitching staff with Ethan Katz as their pitching coach. Um, And this, you know, those kinds of relationships. Brian also talked to the trust that needs to be established for the changes for for whatever changes to be made, you know, to whatever player. Jack Flaherty could be an interesting kind of guy to add to the White Sox rotation. A guy that's obviously coming off injuries and has not pitched as well as he had at the top of his game for the St. Louis Cardinals. But I think also a guy who was, you know, more than ready for a, a, a longer term scenery change in Flaherty. Things got a little dicey uh, between Flaherty and and the Cardinals, and, and I guess Cardinals fans to a certain degree, whether that matters or not to Flaherty is kind of beyond that. But, you know, he got traded to the Baltimore Orioles, and you know, I don't believe he's, I should check, I don't believe he's made that playoff roster. Speaking of the playoffs, we've got a game going on right now. The Rangers lead the Orioles 3-2. to two. Orioles have been being uh, shut down a little bit here before getting one in the fourth and one in the sixth. Got the Twins and Astros starting up here. No score there. I, I think... I think one thing I wanted to make a point of here uh, as it regards the playoffs is this. And it's something that I talked about a lot as we got closer and closer to this year's trade deadline. I, maybe like a month away from the, this year's trade deadline on August 1st. So call, you know, go all the way back to, to July of this year. I pointed out a lot that this team was close in the AL Central. Way under 500 playing bad baseball, but close to the division. And I kept on saying, and I mean it then, I meant it before, and I mean it now. And I think it's just something to reinforce for anyone who's looking at what 2024 or 2025 can be or whatever. Just make the playoffs. Anything can happen. The Minnesota Twins hadn't won a playoff game in like a million years. They even saw the Yankees in the playoffs. They just walked home. Right? I mean, it just it didn't happen for them. 
They won the first round. They're gonna mat- they're matching up right now against the Astros. And a, a large part, I think, of wh- how the Twins won that first round series, I mean, other than baseball being weird, right, is that they pitched really well down the stretch. They were able to, as a pitching staff, I mean, yes, the offense is pretty good. It's a little bit hit or miss. It's a little bit dry at times, but they can actually hit the long ball and they run fairly well. They play good defense. That pitching staff is much better than people gave them credit for. They led baseball in strikeouts, memory serves. I mean, it's just, it's, it's good. And when you shrink your circle of trust of pitchers in the playoffs because of short series, that means your pitching usually is better than it shows. Because you're using the top guys more. It's a big part of the reason the 2019 Nationals went on to win the World Series. Yes, that offense and Juan Soto and everybody else mattered. Howie Kendrick mattered a lot, too. But that pitching was a lot better. Even though it was bad in the season, they shortened it down to the six, nine guys they trusted. And they moved through a playoff schedule pretty quickly. And in dominant fashion at times. I'm not saying the Twins are destined for the same kind of thing. But I do see some similar tenets there. And everybody talked all year about how bad the AL Central was. Rightly so. From top to bottom, the aggregate talent, the way the White Sox underperformed, the way the Twins are just barely holding their head above water for the bulk of the season, the Guardians trading people away and then trying to grab everybody back on waivers and going, oh my God, I forgot we were in it. Let's maybe go for this. I don't know. The Royals just make the tournament. Just make the tournament. See what happens. There's a lot to be said for it. There's some decisions the White Sox are going to have to make on the hitting side of things. We'll talk about those before we end the show. That's next on White Sox. This is Chicago's home for sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. 2-2, two, two, Moncada puts a charge into one, deep right field, Tatis back, this is gonna go! Yoan Moncada with a solo shot, his second in as many nights, and the White Sox are on the board, it's 3-1. Moncada swings and puts a jolt into one, left center field, this is gone! Just over the wall, Moncada homers in a 2-2 count, and the White Sox lead 3-1. A line missile. That one didn't get high. It just got far. Beautiful swing by Yawn. Looked like it was a slider that was up in the zone, down the middle. Exit velocity, fast. Yawn Moncada with a home run to right. And the Sox have the lead for the second time. Moncada with his ninth home run. So a couple of solos for the Sox. And it's 2-1. Those are highlights, courtesy of the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Lynn Casper on the call. I had a couple. Yoan Moncada hit some home runs when I was on the microphone, apparently. You know, he played really well in, in the final month and a half of the season. You saw a healthy Yoan Moncada. And I, I think when it comes to talking about what this White Sox offense, how it's going to change and what it's going to look like in 2024, yes, the conversation around and the idea about whether the White Sox pick up Tim Anderson's option, uh, whether they pick up his option and perhaps look to trade him, whether they pick up his option and perhaps move him to second base, as he was very open to with Scott Merkin of MLB.com and in an interview that the two of them did. You should read it. It's on WhiteSox.com. Uh, it's, it's good stuff. It's some eye-opening stuff. 
Um, whether it's the, the potential trade of Eloy Jimenez, whether it's moving some of the other pieces around uh, a little bit, whether it's bringing in some free agent hitters, what this offense looks like is going to be very interesting to me. One of the things that it seems very difficult for the White Sox to be able to do going into 2024 is, is move on from Yoan Moncada. He's made it difficult with his performance. The contract makes it difficult given his uh, injury, his lack of ability uh, to play uh, 150 games while healthy. is obviously diff- it's difficult for any player. Um, but he signed to a good deal, you know, a, a lot of money. And it's, it would be difficult to, I, I would think, move that contract to a team on kind of a, a flyer situation or what have you and have the White Sox, you know, eat some of that money and get a player back and, and kind of move on in that way. So I, I think, you know, in a, in a strange way, Yoan Moncada is, is as ensconced in this White Sox lineup as, as perhaps anybody, maybe save Andrew, Andrew Benintendi or Andrew Vaughn, you know, given the natures of their deals and the recency of them too, um, it, it may well be that Moncada is a guy that's right there in the middle of that White Sox lineup and hopefully performing well. We're going to talk a lot more uh, about how this offense may change. Just a, a quick note here. Ten days after the World Series, by ten days after the conclusion of the World Series, teams will exercise their options or players will exercise their options on the contracts. So that's the timeline where we'll find out, likely, on those options with the players that we've talked about, Tim Anderson at the forefront. And that's probably where we'll start next week's show, talking a little bit about White Sox shortstop Tim Anderson. A huge thank you to Kendra Smith, our producer, and to Brian Bannister, the White Sox senior advisor to pitching, for hopping on the show earlier today. I'm Connor McKnight. We'll catch you next week for more White Sox Weekly right here on ESPN 1000.